0: I figured out who the neighbor around the corner is. Oh, yeah? I like him a lot. Ooh. He lets me talk as much as I want, is very simple, and has great plans. Okay, I have to meet him. Sure. Say hi. This is Metro PCS
1: metro pcs
2: is in your neighborhood come say hi and get unlimited data talk and text for only 30 dollars. period all on
0: the fast nationwide 4g lt t-mobile network metro pcs wireless figured out coverage not available in some areas one gigabyte of high-speed data included see store for details terms and conditions and data management info blog
1: talk radio
0: Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Don Schwartz is an actor and journalist. His book, Telling Their Own Stories... Conversations with Documentary Filmmakers, is available from Amazon. His film reviews and filmmaker profiles appear regularly on FromTheHeartProductions.com. Carol Dean and Don Schwartz love documentaries, and they created this show to encourage people to watch more documentaries.
1: Oh, Claire, we find that documentary filmmakers are our most precious asset in filmmaking, and we highly recommend them, and that's why we created the show, so that we can share some of these great films that people who are working and don't have time to do all the, the research they need to find out which shows to watch, we can give you uh, a report on about five shows once a month to let you know what's out there, so that you can choose which ones you think you would really enjoy, all of which, we always pick films that we both love, we think that's really important. Filmmakers have a hard enough time. They don't need any more criticism. They need support. So, Don, give us your review of A Ballerina's Tale.
3: It's her biography. It's directed by Nelson George. And Misty Copeland is an African-American ballerina. And she has broken multiple barriers in the rarefied world of professional ballet. And uh, along the way, she has found pop stardom. And also, she's headed to the movies. She's going to be uh, one of the main characters in a narrative film directed by the the legendary Swedish director Lasse Uh Misty made history by by just by being the first American African American ballerina to become the prima ballerina for a major ballet company. Uh, and uh, and she's had a, a number of breakthroughs along the way. Uh, one of the most dramatic ones was in, in 2013, when she had the lead role in Stravinsky's Firebird that was at uh, New York's Metropolitan Opera House. Her performance was an utter triumph. And uh, afterwards, very quickly afterwards, in, in hushed tones, she confessed to having danced with... Pain. It sounds like it was pretty serious pain, which adds to the challenge of that triumph that she, she uh, attained. Misty spent uh, many months uh, overcoming uh, her debilitating injury, and, and uh, uh, against all odds, she became that first African-American prima ballerina. And uh, one of the things I, I like about this film is that Misty tells her much of her own story, and I like it when people tell their own story. And uh, along the way, we are also treated to a lot of her performances throughout the film. So you're getting two films in one. You're getting a performance film, and you're getting a really dramatic and a really inspiring and a warm film story about, about uh, a per, human personal triumph. And I, I thought about the film afterwards, what it, what it did to me. And three words came up. This film is exciting. It's thrilling. And it's, it's heartwarming. And uh, my bottom line is the world of ballet will never be the same.
1: Well done, Don. Well done. Thanks. I, I, uh, I totally agree with you. I'm so glad to hear you enjoyed it. Now let's get to Fear of 13 because I, I, this is a film by David Sington. Uh, he talks about Nick Yaras, and Nick is on camera most of the time. Nick went into jail as an addicted 20-year-old, and he came out a well-educated, highly articulate man. The Fear of 13 by David Sington is, to me, a top documentary. He chose an excellent character to relate his story because Nick has an uncanny talent for storytelling. His timing is excellent. His verbal descriptions of events are peppered with his own sound effects, allowing you to see and hear the event just as he did. I was mesmerized, and I really enjoyed every minute of this film. And it has a great surprise ending. Shocked me. I would say that this gripping story is technically flawless. From the first ten seconds you're engaged by Nick's storytelling, and Singleton supports his story with clever reenactments and visuals that bring the emotional edge of the film home to the viewer. Uh, Nick discovered books in jail, and this discovery and his focus on his vocabulary are highly commendable. It developed his love and respect for books, and it is the background. For his highly incredible ability to envelop his audience in a well-delivered story, so I recommend it. What do you think, John?
3: I love this film. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, this is a Netflix film. You can find it on Netflix, as you also can find *The Ballerina's Tale* on Netflix. Uh, there is a, there are a lot of documentaries about injustice in the United States, and they're all very powerful because injustice is a, a tragic a uh, 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 two too common tragic event, but this film may seem like it's uh, uh, just another film about injustice in america but uh, but that 's not right it 's not a polemic it is a character study and all the lines in this film are spoken by Nick Yarris. This is essentially a ninety minute monologue, and uh, his story is, is totally classic he was He was uh, put in jail for a murder he didn't commit and spent many, many years and fought all that time and transformed his character during that time of fighting for his freedom. Uh, And uh, David Sington's visuals do a great job of mirroring the substance and tone of Nick Yarris' story. And uh, so this film just grabs you from the beginning because Nick Yarris grabs you from the beginning. He, he was a small-time criminal, and uh, now I would say he's a professional performer. He, 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 uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in movies or TV shows. He, he's so talented. Uh, and I have to confess, I have a deal. Right? My deal is I do not like to know anything about a film before I see it. I want to see it with my own eyes and listen to it with my own ears. As this film started, and Nick Yaris, Yaris was talking about his criminal past, and it was obvious that he's on death row. He was on death row for 20 years. Uh, I figured that I was watching a documentary made by a filmmaker who wanted to cover somebody, their life, before they were killed. So I didn't know what was going to happen as this film went on. And it was, for me, it was, it, it was delightful to just go through the process of discovery as he tells his story and i was able to find some special features i don't remember how but uh when it comes to documentaries and special features i mean i consider special features part of the movie cuz we got to hear nick yaris talking about seeing his movie on screen so uh the fear of 13 it's it's uh it's totally engaging and and uh, and it's it's inspiring to see such a strong character and that's it
1: Absolutely. That's it. Absolutely right. <clears throat> we, You know, we watch movies because we always see a character develop themselves. Usually when the film starts, you see someone who has a character flaw and they don't know it, or if they know it, they don't care, that they, they like themselves that way, and then they change. Well, Nick was forced to change in this film, and, and I don't think there's anything better than true storytelling. You couldn't write a script this good, Don. This is terrific. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did, too. We'll get into Kid Poker. Tell us about that.
3: Well, Kid Poker uh, is a film I saw because Carol Dean told me to see it. <laughs> and and it was uh, it's a fun film about a fascinating character. And uh, uh, Carol, tell me if I'm pronouncing his last name right. It's Daniel Negrano, Negruno. Well, I to tell his last name i I'm, I'm guessing Ni or OK. And he became uh, a world-class, uh, highly accomplished uh, winning poker player. And, and it was the film that's directed by Gary Davis and Francine Watson. And it is <clears throat> on Netflix, specifically, it is a Netflix documentary. And you follow his journey from a kid in Canada, uh he was going back and forth quite a while between Canada and Las Vegas, and you go through his ups and downs, and you go through a lot of lessons he learned along the way and uh, and he's He's very vociferous; he has a lot to say. a lot of poker players, I guess, are very quiet and and Daniel likes to talk, and as a matter of fact. Uh, He's also an actor, which I found out afterwards. Uh, He's acted in several theatrical films, including X-Men Origins: Wolverine, and he's been on countless television shows. And he's a character, and you just, you just, your jaw gets to drop as you 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 see him go through his wins and his losses.
1: Yeah, that's poker. That's poker. Well, no, I thought he was marvelous. Uh, I liked the fact that it takes you into the Las Vegas gaming world, where you get to see the highlights of Daniel's life while he climbs the poker ladder. You would think that that just knowing the game would would, uh, be all you need, but not in poker. This film shows you that having mathematical skills is not near enough to make it in the poker world you need an extraordinary understanding of your fellow man because it's very easy to fake your hand and outbid people when you have nothing. I've seen it many times. Of course, I come from Texas, and I grew up in poker land down there. And so I know that learning a, people's, a person's tell or watching them is so important. So it's this is another aspect of the game that without it you can't win. So just the two of these incredible talents are not enough. You need money management. What do you bet, and when do you bet it, or do you raise, uh, knowing that this information is only gathered, really, from thousands and thousands of games of poker. And uh, my grandmother was a good poker player, player, and she took a weekly expensive taxi ride to the richest part of Dallas, and she always came home a winner. And I loved it because she would uh, she always made clothes just for me, my own designs, and it was so much fun. And I always knew when she walked in that door smiling that it was a new dress on the way. But my favorite part of Kid Toker, uh, Poker is when Daniel showed us his vision board. Even with six World Series of Poker bracelets, he has a vision board and he sets goals and he goes after them. He is self-motivated. He puts the pressure on himself to achieve. And everything starts with clear intentions. And he is—he comes from the place where, that when you believe it, then you put it to work. And when he gets in a, bla, a very bad place, he recognizes it quickly and he shifts out of it. And he asks, how am I responsible for creating this? How can I... Change what I am in this moment. How do I really want to be? And this is the way he handles loss, and he moves to the next hand uh, or the next day, but he's in power. So if you like games, I say to you, this is a film to watch. Or if you like poker, if you've ever been enthralled by watching poker online, you would – find this an interesting film because you you start with a kid who is gifted with mathematics and you think oh well he'll just soar to the top but that's not what happens and it's really worth watching to see the whole film so now don let's go to drone tell us what you thought of that film
3: drone i also saw it on netflix it is written and directed by uh hessen Shea. the last name is s-c-h-e-i and that's a one-word title, Drone. And uh, a, a former drone operator named Brandon Bryant opens the film. He is talking about his painful emotions uh, as he, he, he experienced after he left the service. Uh, he's haunted by the knowledge that he participated in the killing of innocent human beings. Uh, Brandon Bryant appears... Uh, throughout the film. His, his interview is peppered throughout the film, but he appears last, uh, uh, um, providing testimony to uh, the United Nations. Uh, Shay's film gives a brief outline of a history of drone deployment uh, for military purposes. Uh, again, we're speaking primarily of the United States. And the central focus of the film in terms of time, screen time, is about the killing of civilians in Pakistan. We see and hear from victims. Uh, We also learn about efforts to to hold the United States accountable for its actions and attempts to stop the killings. This, this film brings up issues above and beyond drones. They uh, uh, obviously... Oh, oh, I left one thing out I wanted to, to say. In addition to the history of drones, he, uh, 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 the director also includes a, a projected vision of warfare by autonomous devices. So, uh, the, again, this brings up general issues of war beyond the issues of drones. Uh, They use drones for for essentially killing leaders. Uh, And this is, uh, uh, you you, you hear the phrase whack-a-mole bantied about when talking about our attempt to stop uh, 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 Islamic terrorism. And I've often wondered, uh, that doesn't make sense, because it's obvious that the more killing we do the more killing they will do, and uh, at the end of this film, at the end of Drone, there is uh, a statement by Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, and he was the chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell in the years 2002 to two th- 2005. And I want to read the statement to you because uh, it, it, I think it, it's a very fitting. Uh, uh... statement regarding our use of drones the united states has become a national security state whose raison d'etre which means the reason for existence is war we've created a terrorist industrial complex that is self-perpetuating and now searching for the reason for this constant state of war terrorism is the perfect case for us we can do this forever and when I heard that, I felt so uh, affirmed because I've, I've been thinking about the idea that we have created the perfect enemy. We have created the perfect justification for nonstop war. Uh, so Drone is, uh, uh, is obviously provocative, evocative, it's confrontive, and it's one of those films I think everybody should see. And uh, that's what I have to say about drones.
1: That sounds wonderful. I think it is important that we see it. Um, sometimes I wonder if our government doesn't fund films that, uh, like Eye in the Sky. I mean, that gives you, you – once you see that, you think you truly understand what's going on with drones. You think you see both sides, but I don't think you do. And I think that uh, that filmmaker who made this – was uh, should be awarded a gold star for bringing this information to us this is marvelous thank you very much so now tell us your review on spring and arnaud
3: uh, spring and uh I, I wasn't quite sure how to pronounce it but i believe it's spring and arnaud arnaud
1: uh,
3: yes uh, is uh, about uh, a couple and the woman's name is spring hurlbut and I apologize for mispronouncing it, and Arnaud Mags, And we have, uh, as our interview for uh, today, uh, one of the filmmakers of Spring and Arnaud, Marcia Connolly. So we'll be talking to her after we talk about the film. Uh, so Spring Hurlbut is a successful artist, and Arnaud Mags is also a successful artist, Spring does, and, and by the way, I have to uh, give a caveat here. I'm a Philistine. I, I don't pretend to understand art. Uh, but uh, 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 Spring tends to make what I think might be called installations. And Arnaud is a photographer, and I will look to Marcia for correcting me there. Uh, and uh, Arnaud is 25 years older than Spring. And in the film, he's 85 years old and working on another art project. And so I, I was intrigued by the coverage of each of their art, uh, that what they say about their art and, and, and the presentation of their art. But I was blown away. My heart was soaring at the love that, that uh, the producers captured in this film. And I, I'm a hopeless romantic, and so when I see love that, that powerful on a film, it just gets me, and, and uh, so I just, I'm just i in love with this film. Uh, the, the, the filmmakers explore the professional biographies of the two artists, and we see their work, and we see the love story, and uh, it's a love story that I believe is 25 years long. And the, every aspect of this production of this film is standard bearing the cinematography the sound uh the music uh the music is by ohad van shetrit and justin small and, and i i contacted the producers saying i'm desperate to get the mu- uh, a soundtrack of that music because i also love the music so this is uh this is an enchanting film and it's a film that i will see several times and uh Carol do you want to say anything?
1: I think it's brilliant. I'm so happy that uh, that we are we're able to review her today. So talk, let's get you started with some of your questions and introduce her for us.
3: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Marcia Connolly. Hi.
1: Hi there, John. Hi Carol. We're so happy to have you with us, and we want, uh, Don has some questions, we want to hear about the production of the show. We understand that you were uh, the cinematographer and the co-director. That's quite a lot to do on a production.
2: Um, Yes, yes. As a documentary filmmaker, I've I've been a documentary filmmaker and video journalist uh, for quite a few years. I actually have found that the smaller the crew, the more um, intimate the interviews are. Uh, so it's it kind of, for me, I have actually shot all of the films that I've directed, all of the documentaries that I've directed. So for me, that's, that's a really integral part of how I work.
1: Smaller the crew, the more um Personal and the more intimate. this is so true. A friend of ours who won our film grant went off, and and he's been working with the Learning Channels and just other places. And he works with one other person. The two of them. That's it.
2: Yeah. So for uh, on this film, um, Catherine Knight is the co-director, and uh, we kind of we we are we are long-term collaborators and. You know, the films that we make together are, you know, very different than the films that we make independently because they, we really build on each other's skill sets. So mm-hmm. how it usually works is that we kind of really uh, think about what our intention for each interview is going to be, um, and then but then I often do the interviews by myself. Yeah. That was the case with Spring and Now.
1: You ask them to be interviewed by yourself, so you're just there alone?
2: Yes, with them, or if I was doing an interview with both Spring and Arno, then obviously it would be the three of us.
1: That's fabulous. And uh, so how do you choose your backgrounds? Do you decide up front if you're going to do green screen or not, and then um, do you, what do you go See the house, see the area, or choose your locations where you're going to shoot before uh, the shoot day. Um. So, if we, in terms of the film, like um, Spring and
2: Arno, both Catherine and Katherine Knight and myself, uh, we knew Spring and Arno very well uh, beforehand. I actually live, I lived in the same building as Spring and Arno for many years, and I had collaborated with Spring. I actually filmed one of her pieces that's featured in the film Airborne and Catherine had a long term relationship with Spring and Arnaud as well. And a lot of Spring and Arnaud, um, a lot of the ways that the interviews happened and everything else were really quite organic. So a lot of the um what could be called interview material came out of Verte situations, both in France and in Toronto both in their living uh, space and within their studios. We definitely did do some sit-down locations, and some sit-down interviews that are more formal, uh, and all of those environments were chosen for what would be conceptually most appropriate for what we were looking to talk with them about in that interview.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: I
1: don't think nothing is to the green screen. Yes,
2: yeah, oh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've never actually done a green-screen interview.
1: Well, this makes it... That's why I was so up close and personal. The film felt that way. Well, let me ask you something. How do you choose what to shoot for Verte?
2: I think, um, well, with something like... With a Verte film, you end up with a very high... Uh, very high shooting ratio. Uh, I think... A lot of our footage, as you can see from the film, a lot of the footage was shot in France. They have a they had a summer home in France. France was integral to both of their practices. So Catherine and I um, both went to France for ten days. It's kind of some of the things that happened in France are very core to their practice. A lot of their works have originated from objects that they've collected there at flea markets. So. Flea markets are very integral to their work, so we knew that we would go to flea markets with them, um, meals. Everything within Spring and Arno's daily life is almost as considered as their artwork. So meals are not something that are slapped together. Meals are, were very considered, so we knew that we wanted to film them eating. Uh, they were big kind of on rituals, so we knew that we wanted to film that and you know their time in France. It's kind of all about collecting. So we we definitely wanted to do that. And they would, um, they kind of each, there was things that were very important to them that they wanted to have part uh, part of the film. So each of them would kind of say like, um, it was it was funny. In the beginning, they would almost cross-program with each other. There was always kind of a healthy level of competition there where I would be filming an interview with Spring, and Arno would come in and say, you, you might be interested. I'm doing uh, an installation in the courtyard playing <laughs> with the morning light, and this is the only time that it's going to happen, so you may want to consider... Filming it, and so I had to have kind of a, a very like um, delicate conversation with them about why they could not cross program,
3: <laughs> like
2: they could not cross program events, that there was one camera, and that they would get equal billing, but that they definitely had to respect if we were filming with the other, which they did, because they are definitely each other's number one fans. That as they talk about, you know, an artist very much has to promote their own work and very much advocate for their own work. So Spring talks a lot about how, well, talked about in the film how they both have, out of necessity, healthy egos, especially when it comes to their work. And so they they definitely, that was present in the film as well. So, yeah.
1: Oh, that's know. marvelous. Hopefully. Well, any artist these days who can support themselves and even have two living areas in in Europe and in America, they have to be doing something right. Oh yeah, for sure. They're,
2: yeah. they're very like both of them. Um, I won't give away too much in terms of Arno, but uh, they were both highly, highly. They they lived their work. There was very little distinction between what could be called their daily life or, you know, their domestic life and their art practices. It was something that was very much occupied, you know, all of their conscious, I would say close to 100% of the time.
1: Wonderful. They really are living artists. That's great. I'm so glad you were able to capture that part of their lives. Don, tell us your questions.
3: Okay, uh so Marcia, how has overarching view of how the film has been re- received?
2: I would say that the um, that the film has been I I would say that the film has actually been very well very well received. It's quite an emotional journey for an audience. Um I don't want to give away too much of that, but it's it's something it's kind of a film that was interesting usually in terms of a q and a I would have to tell, and I kind of have some old standbys stories right after the film because people would kind of be so emotionally flattened by the end of the film that you know that, that there wasn't questions that were leaping to mind, so I would kind of have to um fill some time right at the beginning of every Q&A, and I would kind of tell my favorite stories about spring and my favorite stories about Arno through the production of the film or tell stories of how we approached the film and so that people could recover a little bit and then their questions would always come. There's, and I think that it is like, like what you said, Dawn, is that you know I don't think that you can just pigeonhole this film as an art film. It's definitely a film about two artists but it's a film about love, mortality, and art. And, you know, everyone that views this film hopefully has a relationship to love and definitely has a relationship to mortality. And art is something that if they don't have an intimate knowledge of, it's still, they still have access to this film.
3: Absolutely. And about a speechless audience, I mean, when I'm speechless at the end of a film, that is the mark of a powerful film.
1: Thank
2: you, Don. Yes,
3: and, and also, uh, also the, the the moments of love you capture there, that is very rare in, in seeing those moments on film. That that is, I, I cannot overstate how how valuable and rare those moments are that you captured. I I just don't have a memory of of being so moved by uh, those moments uh, in a documentary.
2: Thank you. I mean, it was definitely a 25-year love, like a love affair. It was, it was a very, very beautiful love, and they were like, it was they were incredible partners for each other, and they definitely enabled each other to reach heights within their professional practices that they undoubtedly would not have reached without the other.
1: For sure.
2: Wow. I want to make I
3: a quick. I want to make a clarification uh, for listeners. Uh, Arnaud is spelled A-R-N-A-U-D. I want to make sure we... As you go to look for the film, Spring and Arnaud, and Arnaud is A-R-N-A-U-D, and it is a first-run features documentary.
0: Well,
1: tell me, what did Arno and Spring say about the film? How did they like it?
2: Well, um, I will be giving away things to our viewers. Um, Arnaud actually passed away before um, the film was edited. Uh, yeah, so um, spring for, so what it was is there's some interesting things is Arnaud, and again, I don't want to give too much away, but I, I'm hoping that this will, this will be, won't deter any um, viewers. And so Arnaud knew when he agreed to make the film Arno knew, of course, that he had cancer. He did not tell myself, nor my co-director Catherine, nor anyone other than his oh. immediate family that he had cancer. And I'm actually very grateful, um, because anybody, it, a documentary film is phenomenally demanding, and I don't. We would never have made the film that we made if we had known that Arno was ill. And so I think that he agreed to make the film as a gift for Spring. I mean, it, it's, this incredible, uh, it's this incredible document of their life together and of their love. So even though Spring doesn't have Arnaud anymore, for her, the film is this incredible gift because she can dip back into their life together. And she can kind of, for the length of the film, be back within their life together.
1: That's incredible. Uh, uh, but
2: one thing, yes, Don. Uh,
3: I have, but you go ahead. I have another question, but you go ahead.
2: Sure. Like so, for us, it was like I mean, it was kind of heartbreaking that Arno didn't get to see the film because I actually believe that he would have been the number one fan of the film. But it was really important. I wanted him, and Catherine wanted him to see some of the footage. So when he was in the hospital, really not doing very well at all, we brought in footage and you know, Spring said, I don't know that he'll be able to see it. You can you can ask him, but I'm really not sure. And, you know, as soon as Arno heard my voice, he perked right up and he said, Is there footage? I want to see the footage, like tip get me sitting up, where my glasses and he was, it was actually, it was unbelievable because there he was in his hospital bed and he was pumping both his fists up in the air, just laughing and wanting to see it again. And he just oh said that my. he that he loved it. And it was interesting. We had a phenomenal editor. Jared Rabb was our editor and he really, you know. I can't sing Jared's praises enough. Jared's gone on to be a phenomenal filmmaker, but he was we were really lucky to have him as an editor and once it was clear uh, and far more known that um Arno was dying he said, when are you going to do the last interview with Arnaud? Because it can't just be that the film ends with a dedication to him. He knows he's dying, and you know he's dying. And one of the core themes of the film and one of the core threads of the film is both artists' relationship to mortality. You have to give him the opportunity to directly speak to that. And I said, you know, Jared, are you asking me to go interview him, asked my dying friend his thoughts on death, and Jared was like, absolutely. So I went and spoke to Arnaud about that, and he said that that was something that he absolutely wanted to do, and that he just had one rule that there could be no tears. He didn't want any tears, so I made the decision, because for those of you who haven't seen the film, Arno is what I would call a silver fox. He's an incredibly... Beautiful man, and we and um, and Spring's incredibly beautiful herself. So I wanted that to be the image, and Catherine wanted that to be the image in people's minds. So the last interview that was done with Arnaud, the lens cap was kept on. We we I did the sound through the camera so that it would have the same quality, but you don't there's no image to that interview, and it ended up being an incredibly important interview for the film because it gave. Uh, Arno the opportunity uh, to to share his thoughts on his impending death and to share his thoughts in terms of what he hoped for for spring and he was kind of able to leave a message for spring within the film. How lovely.
3: Uh, so may I ask a couple questions. Sure. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh, the music. The music is gorgeous. I don't, I really get so excited by music. Can you say anything about the music?
2: Sure, I definitely can. We were incredibly lucky to work with Justin Small and Ohad Benchitreat. Both of them are, are phenomenally accomplished musicians, and they have now done uh, several scores and award-winning scores. And um, so why I love working with them and why Catherine and David – Craig is the other producer of the film, uh, and he was integral, of course, to all stages of the film. Um, why we love working with them is that they are like phenomenal conceptual artists. So we wanted to have we wanted Spring to have her own score, Arnaud to have his own score, and then there to be kind of a, a mixing of those two when they are together and we wanted France to have a very distinct sound as well and they were really able to do that and they scored kind of all of the most spring in our nose kind of main seminal pieces that were featured in the film and so they really they really understood uh, they really understood the, the work you know, and, and it was something that I was actually quite nervous about and something that I know Spring was incredibly nervous about. To have music put underneath someone's artwork absolutely shapes the viewer's experience of that work. So that's something that's quite, you know, nerve-wracking, and they are brilliant, and Spring couldn't have been happier, as were we. Good. So,
3: you, you know, it's my lifelong dream to be able to get that soundtrack.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll have to work on that for you, John.
3: Please, please. And, and, and uh, so the last thing is, uh, since Spring and Arno you produce Strange and Familiar uh, Architecture on Fogo Island, and that's also out on first run. But I'm wondering, what's next?
2: Well, we'll have to just, we'll have to just see. Since those films, I produced something else. I produced uh, A Sun. So that's kind of something that I'm <laughs> focusing on right now. It's a, it's a big project. On it's a really big project. So he, as, Boy, you know.
3: He's going to have a great doc. He's going he's to have a great documentary of his life. Yes, yes. I hope so. Oh. Yeah. It's, oh.
2: um, the, I will definitely, and Catherine and David will definitely make uh, more films in the very near future. But there isn't anything that is in production at this moment and i just wanted I just wanted to say, like for us, we really see the film as kind of on its spring in our there's kind of like and their relationship to art, love, and mortality,
1: oh my God, sorry don I, I don't it. know if i if I hijacked your last question
3: well that that was it for me,
1: no. Oh. Well, you've done such a marvelous job, and thank you very much for sharing all this information with us. I have to agree with you. I have two children. I say that my son was my low-budget production because little boys (laughs) are – you can buy 29 cents worth of toys, and they're gone for a day. But girls are high-budget. So what did you have? What is your child? Um, he's, uh, I had a son,
2: and uh, we actually gave him Arnaud's name as his middle name. So his name is oh. uh, Harlan Arnaud.
1: Well, how lovely. So um, we'll see if he has any artistic tendencies. Won't that be interesting?
2: Yes, for sure.
1: And what's his birthday? He, uh, June 9th. Oh, Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. So when you get into your next film, let us hear from you. We'd really love to be part of hearing about your film while you're making it. That's even more exciting. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Don. Well, thank you. Take care. And, And Claire, thank you for helping with the show today.
0: Oh, you're most welcome, Marcia. I was very happy that you could join us as well. And Don, thank you, too. Okay, take care. Bye.
1: Goodbye, everybody.
0: Bye. 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 Now in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. an emergency hotline help my mom doesn't think i need to go back to school you have to go to school it's the law you didn't let me finish she doesn't think i need to go back to school
3: shopping
2: that should be a law go to old navy you'll be voted best dressed before school even starts
3: old
1: navy yes
2: right now kids clothes are up to 60 percent off
1: 60 percent off
2: yeah the hallway
0: will be your runway they have awesome graphic tees colorful active gear and jeans start at just ten dollars now you're talking thank you don't thank me thank old navy balance 728 to 92 select styles only Randalls has everything you need every day. Make us your one-stop
2: grocery store for all things fresh and delicious at a value you'll appreciate. For a special dinner this week, shop with your remarkable card and get fresh snow crab clusters from the seafood department for only six ninety-nine a pound. And for healthy snacking, pick up fresh red seedless grapes from the produce department for just ninety-seven cents a pound. Fresher seafood, sweeter produce, better prices. Randalls proudly serving Houston families since nineteen sixty-six.